again and again. And uh, you, you, you're watching him and you think, boy, all right, I've seen this now 50 times, 100 times, 500 times. Certainly now I can go and do these things. And then when you are on your own and you're doing these things, you think to yourself, well, what, why am I not getting the exact same result? When I throw this suture, how come it's not looking the exact same way that I saw this person do 500 times? And, you know, I think there's a portion of you, you almost have to take a step back where you, where you say, gosh, sometimes what worked for one person may not entirely work for you. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of the Rhinoplasty Podcast with me, Dr. Cameron McIntosh. We are on to our last interviewee for the month of July. And the month of July is brought to us by Medtronic. A huge shout out to Medtronic for enabling this educational podcast, which goes around the world. We've got listeners who, who send messages wanting to have all sorts of different speakers, etc. And we've got somebody very special on today. It's one of the rising stars of rhinoplasty from the United States of America. Last week, we had Dean Triomi's fellow. This guy did a fellowship with another legend in America, Sam Most, who is actually one of our faculty at our Congress in November here in Source, our surgical summit. And when Sam heard Matt speaking, he, he got hold of me and said, Cam, listen, dude, you have to get hold of Priyesh Potl because this guy really impressed me. So if Sam most says this, there's a lot of pressure on his shoulders. So Priyesh, welcome to today's episode of the Rhinoplasty Podcast. It's so good to have you here. Thank you so much for having me. I appreciate it. So tell us as the listeners, where in the world are you at the moment? So I'm in Nashville, Tennessee at Vanderbilt University, a large academic center here in the U.S. Um, and I've been here now for just over two years back on faculty. And this is also a special place to me because this is where I started my residency training or did my residency training um, before leaving to go out to California with Sam. Um, and uh, like I said, I've been back on faculty here now for about two years. Oh, wow. So when, when you say Nashville, all I think is the home of country music, man. Do you play any instruments? Uh, you know, I used to play the drums, um, but I have given that up because I um, certainly have have made my family uh, very irritated from the, the sounds of loud, loud instruments and loud drums. And so gave that up. Um, but yeah, certainly don't play the instruments now, but we'll, we'll go and um, be part of the country music, you know, festivals here and the environment here is, is Absolutely amazing. If you have not visited Nashville, it is definitely worth a visit. Awesome, man. Okay, so Presh, let's dial back. Take us through where your career started. Um, to end up doing a fellowship in facial plastic surgery with Sam, this must have started many years ago. Tell the listeners where this journey took off. Yeah, you know, I um, actually at the, at the start of my medical career, I was torn between ENT and facial ENT and plastic surgery. And so it sort of just naturally happened that when I started my residency in ENT, I was a little bit more inclined um, to, to do more of the facial plastics um, side of things. But for me, rhinoplasty developed, honestly, sort of late in, in my residency where I realized that it was one of these surgeries in which you kind of go in, you think you have a plan, the plan sometimes changes, um, you do one thing and it causes a big change in something else. And you're like, how does something so simple, a small stitch here cause such a major effect somewhere else? And this 
this puzzle in many ways and this exercise um, really just intrigued me. And that is, that's really what drew me to, to rhinoplasty was this idea of, Hey, um, you know, no, nothing is ever going to be the same. Every case is a little bit different. And, and it just was so exciting to me. Um, and so, you know, in, in many ways, my interest in rhinoplasty sort of developed later in my, um, later in my residency. Because initially, I, my, my biggest interest was in facial reconstruction. That's what really excited me. And it's certainly a huge passion of mine still. But um, at this point, rhinoplasty has become that passion of mine where I'm, I'm, um, I wake up thinking about a patient that I did, you know, the day before or the week before. And when I see a patient on my um, schedule for this week, I'm thinking, man, I remember doing X, Y, and Z. And it's just, it's remarkable when you see a patient, you almost just remember everything that you did in the operating room you know, um, in their case. And it, and it, for me, I just, it's very, very exciting. Oh, that's awesome. It's difficult to go to sleep after a rhinoplasty. You keep thinking about it. So off air, we were talking about two topics that we're going to climb into just now, this whole thing about preservation and the, and the, the changeover from being a resident to being a consultant and kind of setting up your own practice, et cetera. But let's chat a little bit about what it's like to, be Sam Most's fellow. I mean, this is a guy, one of the guys who publishes like nobody. And my understanding is that between him and Dean, they're really the only two fellowships that are offering preservation rhinoplasty. So we're going to get into the preservation thing just now. But talk to me about what it was like working with Sam. You know, it, uh, the first couple of weeks, you're um, you're really nervous, and you know, like you mentioned, you're in the presence of a rhinoplasty legend. And, you know, the other thing about, about Sam is that it's not the only thing he does. He, it's a, it's definitely the majority of his practice, but he does a variety of other cases. And so here you are trying to juggle all these different elements of, of training, um, both clinically and then academically. And you're trying to just make sure that you, um, give off a great impression, you know, and you want to make sure that you, um, are prepared for cases. And so you read, you come early, you make sure that you know all the details of, of these cases. But no matter what, it's almost like you, you can't prepare yourself um, for many of these things, right? So rhinoplasty just being a prime example, you're, it's a black box. You many times open up the nose and there are going to be things that you just don't understand, you don't know. And I think initially I was so hesitant because I was like, man, I, this is a complex operation. I, I should just focus, just watch. And I think it was about two to three weeks in when I realized, gosh, this guy is not just a phenomenal surgeon. He's a phenomenal teacher. And um, you start to relax a little bit and you you get into this groove where you, you feel like, gosh, even though for me, I'm like watching all these little details in his head, he's done this so many times that it's very easy for him to be operating and also at the same time walking you through um, uh, that surgery, you know. And so I will say our our relationship very quickly developed from being also just a, hey, I am, you know, this attending physician and I am your mentor and teacher to also more of a friendship. And I think as that developed, my ability to just learn um, became infinitely better. You know, I think when you feel like, hey, this is a buddy of yours, as opposed to, hey, this is somebody who's judging every single 
thing that you are asking about or touching or doing, it really changes the dynamic and, and it um, allows you to learn a lot more. And so that, that was one big thing. The other thing is there's no question. Uh, Samos is an incredibly intense academic physician, right? So he, he cares a lot, not about um, only, hey, I'm going to do this case and I'm going to go home. It is a lot about, hey, I want to know, how can we do this better? Hey, is this really the best way to be doing things? And that's what I think has led to his success as a, um, a researcher, right? Is that he his interests are not just, hey, I want to churn out 10 papers or 20 papers. It's, hey, I have this genuine interest in changing the specialty, to advancing the specialty. And I think when you have that passion, Many people who see research or the academic side of things as a bit of a nuisance, more of a like, hey, an obstacle during my clinical practice. I don't want to do, you know, study this or study that. But for, for him and now me, it um, just sort of um, was integrated in, in our clinical practice. It was like, hey, I want to get better clinically. I'm going to go study this and then I'm going to publish on it. And I think um, you kind of fall into that mentality. And the final thing I will say is that. I think he's a firm believer in this. I'm certainly a firm believer in this is that a lot of what we do in academic medicine is not a um, solo event. You know, this requires a team effort and, uh, and my successes in my fellowship, my research successes don't come from me alone. Um, it's a lot of teamwork that, that goes into it. Okay. So tell us a little bit about the publications that you did when you were with Sam. Yeah, so there's a number, um, you know, the large majority were rhinoplasty related. Um, and again, it comes back to trying to just improve our understanding of interventions that we're making. So, um, you know, one example is the in structural rhinoplasty, we use septal extension grafts all the time. Um, and there's this question of end to side or sorry, end to end versus side to side. And, you know, one of the things that we had thought about was, well, when you put a graph side to side, that means it's going into partially into a nasal airway, right? On one side, does that cause any nasal obstruction? So we did a large study to look at that and really um, evaluate the outcomes of septal extension graphing, not for the purposes, again, of publishing a paper, but to really understand for ourselves, are we predisposing patients to a um, negative outcome by using using this technique? And then there's a whole host of preservation rhinoplasty um, studies, everything ranging from studies in cadavers. Again, as preservation sort of has been developing um, and the interest in it developing globally, we stopped and we backtracked and we said, wait, is, is this really better? Are all the things that we are saying are, are so great about preservation really that, that amazing? And so in this cadaveric radiographic study, we were looking at and what are the dimensions of, of the internal nasal valve um, in these different uh, techniques and preservation? And is it good? Is it bad? You know, so things like that is just for us to understand, are these techniques helpful? Um, then there's been some sort of broader global studies in preservation. One of our one of the questions um, that we had is hey, what uh, what are people doing around the world? Preservation certainly isn't a new technique. There are people who have been doing it for many years. Um, but what, what are the global practice patterns? And so in partnership with a lot of well-known rhinoplasty surgeons across the world, 
um, and surveying the, the many different societies, rhinoplasty societies around the, around the world, we surveyed, um, you know, people's practices. Are you doing preservation? Are you not? Where did you learn it? And there's some really interesting things. Like, for example, the majority of people have not been exposed to preservation of rhinoplasty in fellowship. So where are people learning it? And you, you see that a lot of people are learning it from um, conferences or they went and visited somebody, you know. Um, and so those, again, the very broad sort of uh, um, research studies, but that's just sort of a snapshot of the different things that I did. And out of those, what, what, what are the, the kind of some of the key take home messages that you'd like to share? Yeah, you know, I think with, um, well, I'll, since the majority of it was preservation related, I'll, I'll stick to a couple of different things, I think, uh, or I'll stick to the preservation side of things. Um, I think one of the, the big things is that there are certainly um, a lot of positive outcomes that you see with a number of techniques in rhinoplasty. And I don't think that there is one said way to, to get a great result. Um, and there are a number of things that I think we still have a, have to learn about or have to explore. So preservation being one of them, one of these topics where, you know, if you think about, um, the interest in that topic, it's developed over the course of the last five years or so. Um, and again, it's not that people haven't been doing preservation, but the true academic interest in it has, has only developed over the last five years. And so for me, I personally feel like um, there's a lot more to be learned about this and a lot more to be analyzed when it comes to preservation rhinoplasty. Um, so that's that's one big thing. You know, I think it's just, it's just this idea of, hey, I don't think we know everything yet um, and we haven't analyzed everything yet when it comes to outcomes of these techniques. Um, that's, probably the, that, that's probably the biggest takeaway, I think, from from without going into the weeds of, of each study. Yeah, yeah. That's awesome, man. And now having now transferred to Vanderbilt and um, doing more academic research, what's the kind of direction you're going in there? Yeah, you know, so my practice right now consists of probably about 50% rhinoplasty and then a 50% mix of a variety of other uh, things. Um, Clinically speaking, I do a lot of facial reconstruction, nasal reconstruction for cancer defects, et cetera. Um, and I think when I think of my career academically, certainly going to continue to grow to become more rhinoplasty heavy. Um, I think my academic interests continue to be understanding the outcomes of different interventions that we make in, in rhinoplasty, you know, um, everything from Hey, when if you use this graph versus this graph, does it give you a better result? Are patients happy? Um, the other thing that I think is really important is that at the end of the day, when it comes to to research historically in plastic surgery, a lot of it is, hey, I did this. Look at my great outcomes, you know, and you publish a paper on it. And now I think it's becoming a lot more. Hey, that's not acceptable. Now you need data. You need to prove to us that this is actually better. It's We're not just going to take your word for it. We want to see data that maybe patients have um, reported. And so these uh, patient-reported outcome measures are become a, a big thing in, in all different specialties of plastic surgery. And so using those, those instruments and tools to really understand the outcomes for our patients, I think, um, 
are going to be incredibly important. And, and it's certainly where my career is heading is, is incorporating these different data points. Okay. So slightly different topic. When you finish your fellowship, you all bullish, you've had this opportunity of learning from one of the best, but then the reality kind of hits when you're on your own setting things up. And I know we spoke about that a little bit and maybe share with us the kind of the frustrations and the challenges and maybe the words of encouragement to, to people who are going to do be doing their fellowship or their residency. Yeah, absolutely. You know, I think this is, this is almost an unspoken topic in part because embedded in plastic surgery, embedded in our marketing in general is, Hey, look at these great results that I have. Right. And, you, and it's your best results that everybody posts on presentations on their Instagram, you know, and then you learn from some of these elite surgeons, um, Sam as being one of them, where you see him have phenomenal results again and again. And uh, you see you, you're watching him and you think, boy, all right, I've seen this now 50 times, 100 times, 500 times. Certainly now I can go and do these things. And then when you are on your own and you're doing these things, you think to yourself, well, what, why am I not getting the exact same result? When I throw this suture, how come it's not looking the exact same way that I saw this person do 500 times? And, you know, I think there's a portion of you, you almost have to take a step back where you, where you say, Gosh, sometimes what worked for one person may not entirely work for you. Well, that's one thing. Two, there's certain nuances that you don't always pick up on. You know, and I think one of the things that I have valued more than anything is this advice that somebody gave me when I was a resident and they were a fellow. And they and, and when they went out into practice, they said to me, Listen, Priyash, you think you're gonna learn a lot in fellowship, and you certainly will, but you're gonna learn even more in your first year of practice. And that has certainly been true for me. You know, as, as I have come out um, after doing a, a phenomenal fellowship, I've learned that there is so much that I have to tweak for myself or that I have to just go through the process of being frustrated with, you know, a case that maybe took somebody else two hours takes me three hours, you know, or somebody takes five hours and it takes me seven hours. And at first you're kicking yourself. You're thinking, boy, like, I must be really terrible. Why am I doing this? I shouldn't even, I, sh I don't even belong here. And this is almost this idea of this concept called the imposter syndrome, right? Where it's like, man, I just, I shouldn't be doing rhinoplasty. And I think you just have to go through that process. And at the end of, you know, one or two years, and that's sort of where I am now in my career is I'm sort of coming out of that process. You realize how much you've learned and those frustrations have really been a learning experience more than anything um and so i would tell anybody out there you, know, you don't don't worry about the fact that you're going to make certain mistakes certain things are not going to be perfect early in your career but as you go through that process you will certainly be learning and you will you will develop if you if you have the heart for it and you have the passion for it um it will come that's awesome, eh? Wise words, guys. So for the listeners who don't realize, this is uh, old Priyash got up just after three o'clock in the morning for me to record this. So shout out for that. And I know he has to head off to work. So there are two more things I, I want to chat to you about, okay? The one is in your time of being a fellow, some lowlights, some highlights, and maybe a funny thing that you can tell me about Sam so I can rip him off next time I chat to him. <laughs> Okay, let's see. Um, 
I'll have to think about that funny one is that we're going through the, the lowlights and, and the highlights. You know, I think certainly the lowlights are um, both at the beginning and at the end, I think, of, of fellowship. The beginning in part because you realize um, you have so much to learn and you're in a new environment. And um, I think it's there's there's a sense of, of you just feeling really overwhelmed. And funny enough, at the end of my fellowship, there was a period where I felt the exact same way. And in part because you realize, man, I have spent this whole year and I've learned so much, but I feel like I still don't know everything. And I'm about to go out on my own, right? And there is this feeling like where you, you, you're like, man, this is the end of the road for, for, for me from a training standpoint. And um, I think there's there's it almost brought me back to the beginning of fellowship where you feel like, man, it's like I'm starting all over again. Um, things are, you know, again, I'm about to embark on this mission by myself and I'm not ready for it, you know, or um, I just felt sort of overwhelmed. And you, re- you almost have to, again, take the step back and think to yourself, I know a lot, I've learned a lot, and I just have to be open to continuing that learning journey um, throughout my career. So those are two, two lowlights. You know, Certainly one of the, the greatest highlights for me um, was uh, the end of my fellowship when uh, I, I went over to Sam's house and it's a celebration of you truly finishing the end of this academic and clinical journey that you know, obviously anybody in medicine knows how, how long of a process that training is. And um, you know, just celebrating with somebody who has been incredibly special to you and um, says, you know, I, I remember him saying to me, one of the, the, the best things that you have done are not anything um, clinical. You know, it's not something that I don't think it's like the research papers you've written. It's just that the relationships that you have built with people here um, is is more more valuable than anything else. And I, I remember thinking to myself, you know, at the end of the day, why do we do what we do? And it is all about people. It's all about relationships, you know. And so even though we kind of get lost in the technical details of our work and the research of our of our work um, or the research of, of um, or the research parts that we do, it's really, it's really people, you know, it's relationships. And I, and I remember thinking to myself, it's almost more important to me that he, he said that to me, it's more important to me than him telling me, Hey, you're the, you're the best, you know, surgeon I've ever seen come through my doors. You know what I mean? And so I think that was um, probably um, the greatest sort of high, highlight um, of, of my training. Now on onto the the funnies, gosh, there's so much. I, I will say, um, you you may or may not know this about about most, um, but his favorite band is U2, um, and uh, I know very little about um, that, that band. And I'll tell you, throughout my entire fellowship, songs would come on, and um, he would say, "Well, who is this?" And I would just about always get it wrong, you know, and, and at some point I would just start guessing you too. And he's like, you can't just guess that every single time, you know, you can't just <laughs> pick the same man over and over and over again. But that man is incredibly passionate about music. Um, and so, uh, you know, you can definitely poke fun at him for his, his music interests. Awesome. Awesome. Okay. So Priyash, last question that I'm going to throw at you and maybe you got to think about a little bit. Um, what for you are the three key things about preservation rhinoplasty? Three key things? Yeah. 
You know, I think, I think one, I think the most important is to realize that preservation rhinoplasty is merely one of the tools in your bucket as a rhinoplasty surgeon. And I, it's, as I've published on it and I've done more cases with it and I realize, you know, a lot of people, when I, when I'm talking to them, the first thing that they want to talk about is preservation rhinoplasty and, and especially new trainees or incoming fellows. And I almost have to stop them and say, you realize that, yeah, it's certainly important. It's certainly an incredible tool, but it's definitely not the only thing, you know, that you need to learn or understand. And, um, you know, I remember reading early on about preservation rhinoplasty and people like Saban, who, who you know, wrote one of the first papers that became really, really well read um, in, in 2019 or something like that. Um, and he wrote in there very specifically, like, hey, I, um, you know, 30 percent of my um, uh, patients do not have do not undergo preservation rhinoplasty, you know, that, or maybe even it was more than that. So just this idea of a realizing that preservation is an incredible tool, but it's definitely not the only tool is really, really important. And you don't have to convince yourself that every patient, you don't need to try to make every patient a preservation case. That's one. Two, I think, is this idea of um, simplifying preservation in your head, just like structural rhinoplasty, where you have to understand the basics of it to get good at the nuances and the complexities of it. You have to really focus on the fundamentals of, of what preservation is. And for me, in writing some of these review papers for preservation rhinoplasty, it's how I actually outline all these papers. It's like, hey, look, there's two very simple concepts here. One is you're messing with the bone and the nasal pyramid. Two, you're adjusting the septum. And I think if you just understand the basics of, of these techniques, it will help you as you're learning these techniques um, grow. And I don't think you have to worry about the fact that there are now, you know, 30 or 40 different modifications of these techniques. Just stick to the simple principles, first of all. Um, so that's the, the second component of things. And then the third component of things is truly understanding the indications of preservation rhinoplasty. You know, understanding who the right patient is, when I should use it. And especially when you're starting is to understand who are the easiest patients to get a good result in with preservation rhinoplasty. I can't recall where I read this, and this was an eye-opener to me, but somebody wrote, you know, try doing preservation rhinoplasty on your male patients before you do it on your female patients. And I thought, man, that makes so much sense. And it's like, well, why? Well, preservation rhinoplasty results in a very natural, more of a natural result. It's harder to overcorrect a hump, right? And so the risk of feminizing a male nose with a preservation technique and resulting in any revision is much less than in a female patient where the degree of hump reduction um, desired may be a little bit more. So again, it comes back to really understanding the indications and understanding where you can probably get the, the best and the easiest result when you're uh, starting off. So those would be one, two, and three, I think for, for me. Again, Plenty of nuances in preservation rhinoplasty, just like in structural uh, rhinoplasty. But those are three things that I have sort of learned being with 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 Sam, and then um, starting to do these by myself as well. Awesome, man. Listen, maximum respect. Thank you for your time. 
Um, shout out again to Medtronic for enabling this podcast. Guys, for all the listeners around the world, thank you. So two things. Number one, remember this name because you're going to see this guy doing a lot in the future. And number two, next week, come back to listen to the president of sources speaking, Stuart Geldenhuis. I think you guys will enjoy that talk as well. So Priyash, thank you so much. Thank you for waking up in the early hours of the morning. We really appreciate it. And uh, I really hope and pray things go very well for you and your family and where you're at and everything you're doing. So please, thank you for what you've done. And yeah, have a great rest of today. Cameron, I can't thank you enough. You know, One thing I should say to you is that your podcasts have been amazing, especially for me. Uh, I was a victim of the, the COVID pandemic. Uh, you know, part of my fellowship was was through that pandemic. And um, your teachings and, and your podcasts have been instrumental in my education. And so I really, really do appreciate everything that you do for our, our rhinoplasty community. Awesome, man. Cool, guys. We'll hear you all again next week. 